Well, thank you. Let's have a look at um, <clears throat> Exodus 4. We're going to read from the end of the book of Exodus and just into Leviticus. It's um, and what to do with the tabernacle. What's it, what, what, it's built, now what? Because it made clear there's a problem, there's a curtain. How are we going to get rid of it? And remember, we thought Moses, he saw the angel of the Lord in that burning bush and he said, we're his, it does not consume. How can that be made available for everybody, everywhere? Well, let's find out. So Exodus 40, verse 33. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Just, I just like that idea, isn't it? That if you set up church and do church the way the word of God tells you to do, it's like the glory of the Lord comes. There's something wonderful about that. Anyway, that's not, that's another thing. Right. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they didn't set out until the day it lifted. So, the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Straight over the page, because over the page it's the word and in Hebrew, so it's like it doesn't stop. You're supposed to just carry on reading the same sentence. And the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Leviticus 1 verse 1. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering, offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you're to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons the priest shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You're to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing, soothing to the Lord. Broken relationships, it's uh, fixing them is messy and costly. Not if you, you know, if you just bump into somebody by, oh, sorry, sorry, uh, it's done. But that's not what we're talking, that the, we're really, really broken relationships, things that we do to one another that cause Tremendous harm. How do you fix that? And then how do we fix it if we've done it to the living God? 
How can that be fixed? It's really hard with each other at times. And people live their whole lives. What was that story? Was it, um, yeah, the, your relatives and they had for just one minute apart, wasn't it? Yeah, broken relationship, couldn't fix it. That's it. That was the one bit I took from it. Yeah. 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 That was vivid, though. It was vivid, wasn't it? And then, uh, but your point was that it, the living God could fix such things because when they'd had the strike stuff. And it's that sense of how people live with things. And to be honest, in my time throughout life, there's sometimes I remember there was a lady who used to speak to me after church at All Souls every single week and mention that someone had slighted her uh, years before. And all it was, was they kind of blanked her, the minister or one of the team, years before, 20, 30 years ago. And every single week she mentioned it. And it had happened 20, 30 years ago. There's other people I've spoken to who've seen members of their family murdered before them and have eventually come to love and forgive the people who've done it. So it's got broken it's got very little to do with the apparent size of the offence, actually. People can be utterly bitter over nothing or forgive impossible things. And the difference is this stuff. Life's about relationships with each other, with the world around us, with our own bodies. People have very difficult relationships with their own bodies. They can't forgive their own bodies for not being what they should. Most of all, with the living God. There's no pain like that of broken relationships. How are they fixed? And if real wrong has been done... How, if, if a real terrible wrong has been done to somebody, we, most people would say, you cannot ever fix that. There's vengeance, maybe, but not reconcile. You cannot reconcile. But let's imagine it was possible. How could it be done? I think, and this is if you speak to non-Christian people about this, and say, they might go, no, there's absolutely no way back from certain things that people have done. Said, so, okay, but imagine it. What would be required, even if it was impossible, what could bring back fellowship? Well, they probably say the first thing that might need to be done is that what this wrong that's been done would have to be taken seriously, confessed, judged, punished. You can't pretend it hasn't happened. You can't try and make less of it than it is. You have to face it, name it, judge it, condemn it, punish it. That's the first step. And second, the person who's done the wrong, surely they would have to have a total change of life. There's, if there was going to be any kind of genuine peace between two people after serious wrong, then the offender would need to show that they were dedicated to doing the right thing. Because otherwise there's the fear they're just going to do it again. So you couldn't have peace because they might just do it all again. So a punishment, a naming, condemning, punishing, 
transformation, really, that the, that the wrongdoer is turned around. Thirdly, wrong, serious wrongdoing brings shame and guilt. It leaves a legacy beyond what is immediately obvious. Uh, a fear. People who can be frightened to go out of their own homes when something bad's happened to them. They're frightened in their own homes. They're ashamed of themselves because it's been done to them and they've done it. A stain of corruption in them. Both, both the person who's done the wrong and the person it's done to. This is what happens. If it were possible for real peace to be achieved, there'd need to be some sort of cleansing. A cleansing. Wouldn't there? However, that could happen. Fourthly, all wrongdoing brings loss. It might be the loss of money or property easy at a relatively easy level, but there are much worse losses than money and property. Loss of security, loss of health, loss of family, loss of innocence, loss of life. We can see how some of those things might be restored. But some of them are far beyond any human ability to repay. You can't make that right. They're gone. They're gone. But what if it could be repaid? If that could be done, so we could name it, condemn it, punish it. We could make the wrongdoer right that they want to do right. We could be cleansing of shame and guilt on both sides of it. Repayment to make right what's been lost. And then, if all that could be done, could there be a fifth thing? Where they sit down for a meal together and have fellowship. That fifth thing is unthinkable, really. Without all the rest, isn't it? But if all the rest could happen, and it's as if it's never been done wrong, and maybe even better than that, now could it be that the person who's done the wrong and the person who's had such wrong done, this terrible, catastrophic, is it imaginable that they could sit down together if all that other was done and they could eat together with genuine fellowship? Possibly. We could imagine it, couldn't we? If all that could be done, it could lead to genuine fellowship. Those five things, that is what the first set part of Leviticus is about. That is why there are five offerings in Leviticus. The first seven chapters of Leviticus... The Lord God is describing how how he is going to confront wrong and evil and deal with it. 
profoundly, comprehensively, with total satisfaction. He can do it, which we would say is impossible. You can't get rid of evil like that. It's there, it's done, you've got to live with it. And he's like, no, no, I'm not going to live with it. I can't live with it. We've got to deal with this. We've got to get rid of it. And this is how we can do it. This is how I can do it. And that's why there's five offerings. It's not just meaningless detail, this stuff. It's really profound analysis of how to fix what's gone wrong. Because he wants to have table fellowship with these creatures, human beings that he's made. And he wants to marry us, actually. So let's go through them quickly. There's this burnt offering. It's Leviticus 1, 1 to 17. It's about that first stage that sin, evil, wrongdoing must be confronted, condemned, punished. Do you remember the Genesis 3.24 thing we've mentioned a couple of times about this wall of fire that separates us from the presence of God? The wall of fire. Who can get us through that consuming fire? Well, what they did was they had an ever-burning fire there. Because one or two people asked, how does the courtyard relate to that little model of heaven and earth? So if the tabernacle is this model of heaven and earth, what's the courtyard? Well, the courtyard, you can't see necessarily what's going on inside that building and and all that goes on. But in this courtyard, it's like, look, here you will see out in public so that everybody can see it, what needs to be done to fix the things, in, of the, the, to get to the heart of the problems of the universe. So it's a public space that kind of declares publicly, this is how we're going to get in to the holy place. This publicly, large, proclaimed, is how to solve the problems of the universe. And how to take down the curtain. Really, it's like church. It's like evangelism. It's like us. That we're out there. We're making it clear what that bur- what the altar of burnt offering is doing. And the laver and all the activity. Where people would come and place their hands on the animal and confess their sins. And everyone would hear it. They'd be like, ooh. It's like, well, that's it. We confess our sins, don't we? And that was another powerful thing from you. There's another thing from the talks. The confession of sins publicly. And of course people are like, I can't believe it. He's, he's saying out loud his sins. Yeah, right. And that's what happened, didn't it, at the time? You go, you put your hands on there, press your hands in, and identifying yourself with that animal. And this is me. And here's who I really am. And then you, and then you, you kill it. That's me. And you say it out loud and they hear it. And you say, I don't care. It's got to, it's got to end. I can't keep it secret. Because if I'm keeping it secret, I, I, I kind of want to keep hold of it, keep control of it. I'm letting go of it. I'm losing control of that old life. I'm saying it. And this is it. This is me. And it's, this, is, this is me. That's got to die. And you kill it priest doesn't do it, you do it. It's all there. 
And uh, the animal was taken, killed, and then thrown into this fire that's burning publicly there. And of course, there was this huge pillar of cloud, of cloud and fire indicating here is where heaven and earth meet, here. So of course, the Moabites, the Edomites, all the surrounding nations could see from a very long way away, wherever heaven and earth meet, it must be there because there's a massive column that indicates this is where heaven and earth meet. And of course, it is in partly indicated by fire. And then as they approach, they see there's an ever-burning fire and this sense of how on earth are we going to approach to this living God who is a consuming fire? And there's the fire burning. And then they see people come, confess their sins, kill this animal and throw it into the fire. And the sense of, ah, they're doing something with that fire that makes them one atonement, at one And if you notice, the inner parts of the animal had to be pulled out and exposed and washed. Again, that sense of the inner. You can't, everything that's inside has got to come out. You can't keep any of this hidden. It's got to come out and be exposed. Yeah, it's all there. The inner parts cannot be pretending... I, uh, I'll confess my sins. Uh, I didn't read my Bible as much as I should have done. Shut up. That's not the sins you're confessing. You know. You know what sins. Those need to come out. Hmm? So that's why they do that. They pull out the inner parts and the person who's confessed their sins. They can see it before their eyes. There's nothing hidden about this animal. Its most secret inner parts are ripped out and exposed. And then they're burned. In in, in verse 4 of Leviticus 1, to make atonement, to make one. That's what it does. The burning of the animal. It was as if then the animal goes into that burning, consuming fire, representing that barrier. And it's as if, of course, we must be consumed. That is the consequence of who we are, what we are, what we do, what we've become. And it's as if that animal takes that for us. And almost in the aftermath of that, it's as if there is now a safe space to go through. In the aftermath, it has paid for it in the flames. It faces the consequences. And of course, the the problems of the universe need a deeper solution than the blood of animals. The animal blood doesn't actually do anything. It's just doing something in this fire. It's a picture. It's a sign. It's saying, ah, not, not this fire... This fire's burning here, but look at that fire that's going up into the heavens that comes, indicates the presence of the Lord God himself. That is the fire that really needs to be dealt with. This is just to help you think about that. Alright? That's what they were doing. And then when the Lord God smells the burning animal, it is it says pleasing to him. It actually means soothing to him. 
It's a, new, it's a great word, isn't it? Soothing to the Lord. Why soothing? Because he's, um, he's bothered by evil. And it, it, it disturbs him. It angers him. Wrath. And the thought that there is this evil in his world and his creatures who are designed to share his very life, do and think and desire and say and imagine the things that we do, disgust him. But when he sees that selfishness and evil, greed, argumentativeness, lust, cowardice, when he sees that they are confessed and brought out into the open and, and, and killed and thrown into the fire, he looks at that and he is soothed. He's soothed by that because it makes him think of that cross. He says, yes, this evil will go into the fire and will be atoned for. And he's soothed. He smells it. And he thinks, yes, it will be dealt with. And he's soothed his wrath. Propitiated, that's the word, isn't it? It's a real thing. It's a real thing. It's not, it's not just human projections of emotions onto God. No, the living God, really angry, really soothed by the cross. He cannot bear to think that evil will be ignored or brushed under the carpet. That's like Beth was saying, with Allah, he can just say, oh no, it's fine, I forgive you. Or maybe not. It's arbitrary. He doesn't need any atonement or anything because he doesn't really care. He doesn't really care. But the living God really cares and cannot allow it to be just, oh, well, that's all right. Let's just, time will heal all wounds. No, it doesn't. He remembers. That was done. And that's the comfort, isn't it? Because when terrible injustice is done, human beings will say, well, just let's forget that. That's a long time ago. It doesn't matter now. That's a historic uh, evil but the living God thinks no to me it's as if it's only I remember that I remember how horrible that was and I don't forget that cries out for justice that does nobody may know what happens in locked cellars and <coughs> bedrooms and things dungeons, prisons no one may know. He knows. And he remembers. And that cries out for justice. We understand that, don't we? Evil has to be confronted until justice has been done. We do. And then people at the, you know, the, these historic abuse cases, the Me Too thing, corruption, it's that sense, okay, it happened a long time ago, but these were bad things. Bad things. And we want to name them and condemn them. There's a sort of yearning for it. And it's a right yearning, actually. All of that. 
And if we really know what it is to feel the guilt, the shame, the weight, the burden, the corruption of our selfishness and sin, we are not surprised that it requires blood and death to take them away. We're not surprised, actually. Because we say, don't we, we may do, people we know, non-Christian friends, all sorts of people, I wish I could die. I've done this thing, I wish I could die. I wish the earth would swallow me up. Yeah, that is what it requires. It's not a, it's not a phony feeling. It's a right feeling. It does require that. Not just any death, though. Yours isn't good enough. You imagine, we imagine that's the most extreme. No, that's not enough. It's not enough for your death. For you to be swallowed, it's not enough. It doesn't answer it. It only only adds to it, if anything. No, only the blood and death of God himself, the divine lamb, can take away the deep sickness and shame of our sin. Well, that's the burnt offering. Leviticus 2, 1 to 16, gives us the grain offering. And what a person would do would bring a small loaf or just a handful of flour, even waffles and things. There were quite a range of, there was like a little menu available of things you could bring the grain in. It's quite, it's quite pleasant, really. Um, a cake, a waffle, some flour. Mixed with oil and spices to be burned on the altar, verses 1 and 2. The grain offering would also be a soothing offering to the Lord there in verse 2. Why? Why would this soothe him? Because this isn't blood. This isn't death. This is something else. So why does this soothe him? Grain has a special significance in the Bible, in the law. Grain was given to the Lord as the very first part of the harvest each year. It's in Leviticus 23, verse 10. The first thing that would be harvest was the grain and it would be offered to the Lord. Here's the grain. And then there's other harvest times. There's other harvest event, but this first thing would be the grain offered. Why? Because it's the first and the best. That's the idea. The first and the best for the Lord. A special side of dedication. Not, the old, not what's left over at the end. Oh yeah, what have we got left over at the bottom of the barrel? Yeah, go on then, give that to the Lord. That's in Malachi, isn't it? Where he's like, what's this rubbish you're bringing me? You couldn't, you, couldn't, you couldn't give that away. He's like, no, no, no. The first and the best. And that matters, doesn't it, for all of us in our lives. The first and the best for the Lord. And that's what the grain offering's about. It's dedication. The dedication of life. And when the Lord God sees that grain offering, the first and the best. He thought of a perfect life of righteousness and dedication. A human life that was the first and the best, rather than the compromised and selfish lives that we live. And it's a way of saying, Lord, I want, I want, I wish I could give to you a life that is the first and the best. I haven't got it, but you have. You have got such a life. I can't give you that. But 
I, I, I want to give you the life of well, this life, this sort of a, a perfect life, a righteous life. Christ's life. The perfect man. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who always does what's right. Not so the wicked. We are like chaff. It's really that saying, I'm chaff. But him, the blessed man, Lord, is he good enough for you? He's what we trust in. He's the first. He's the best. That's the life. That's the only life we can offer. Him. It's a powerful thing. Christ, our righteousness, the blessed man. He never, he always meditates on the law of the Lord, doesn't listen to the wicked, roots down, always fruitful. And we go, now that, that is human life as it's supposed to be, isn't it? That's, I can't, what have I got to offer? But him, we say to the Lord, look, no, this is the human life I offer you, not mine, his and people do nowadays. Are you all that you can be? Is this the best? I want to be the best version of myself. We want to say, well, it's the best version is no, it's nothing. It's nothing. It usually means increased selfishness, actually. More, more self-obsession. More time at the gym when you should be doing other things or whatever. You know, all that stuff. Best version... We're saying, no, no, no. That the best version of human being, this is him. This is him. This is the righteous life. The best that I can offer is filthy. Filthy ranks. Disgusting. The best that I can offer is disgusting. But I, I say to the Lord, don't look at that. Don't look at me. But look at him. And when he's our leader and our saviour and we receive his life, well, then we might be fruitful. Let's move on. The grain offering. There's loads we could say about the grain. And probably, I know you're all Bible people, you're doing cross-references, aren't you, about grain offerings. Roger definitely is. He's like, yep. Yeah. There we go. You think all those New Testament things? Yeah. Let's move on. Um... Oops, I've gone and uh, lost number three there. <laughs> That's a bit awkward. Um, oh no, I'm all right. There we are. The sin offering. <laughs> it's. Uh, let's look at the sin offering next. We won't. I know you're like, well, it's a fellowship offering, chapter. Yeah, all right. I know. I'll come back to it. There's a reason why we'll come back to it. <laughs> let's do the sin offering in chapter four. The sin offering shows that we. It's the cleansing point. In this offering, it's about cleansing. It's about washing. It shows that we do have to be opened up and sifted and cleansed. I don't know, we've probably been to therapists to find cleansing. People do. Perhaps we obs- Are we one of those people who obsesses about washing our hands or showering? 
bit OCD. Are we like that? I'm a bit like that. <laughs> yeah. um, I know someone who says they never wash their hands less than 25 times a day. Um, yeah, there's people like that. A lot of people are OCD. Um, there's a neighbour who asks me to go round to meticulously check all sorts of weather appliances are on and off and all sorts of things. Um, and then if I touch any of them, she says, right, that's it, we've got to start all over again. Because <laughs> there's this sense of, like, life's out of control and things are wrong and we've got to get them sorted. And if I just get all my jars facing the right way and then... Then life works. And I've said, you, you realise this is absolute nonsense. And she says, it is, I know, it's totally irrational, but I cannot get free of it. Showering, washing, cleaning, organising. What's going on? Why is that such an obsession to our contemporary culture in so many forms of it? Connery, methods of roll up your t-shirts. And man, there's, there's, there's some wisdom in all these things. But there's a kind of sense that we, we've got to somehow organise things and clean them and, and all this. What's, it's, a, it's a spiritual matter. It's nothing really to do with having organised homes or clean hands. It's nothing to do with that. It's everything to do with the deep shame and guilt in our souls. And we cannot cleanse it. We cannot deal with the disorder that's in us. And no amount of t-shirts rolled up will do it. We, we, we want to clean away our sense of being dirty or ashamed. And this third sacrifice declares to us that is a way to be cleansed. In this offering, the sacrificial animal takes on the sin and uncleanness of whoever needs to be cleansed of their sin. It's there in verse 4, 15, 24, 29, 33. You can see it throughout the chapter. The animal was killed, its blood applied to the altar, and then the, the high priest had to open up the animal, remove its fat, purge away what was unclean, and then the rest of the animal was actually taken outside the camp to be burned in verses 12 and 21. It's that sense of, because outside the camp, that's the place of uncleanness and death and disease and demons and things. And it's as if this uncleanness has to be taken away and thrown out into the outer place. It's got to be got rid of. You can't keep this stuff around. It can't be managed. It has to be destroyed, burned and utterly sent away forever. You can't keep it around. You can't manage it. Because that's when sometimes with addictions, I'm trying to manage my addictions. And the idea is it's in a cage and I've mostly caged it. No, it has to die. We cannot still say I am an addict, but I've not done it for like three weeks or two years or whatever. No, you have to be free. You can't cage it. It has to be killed. So the animal is sifted, burned, cleansed. Much deeper work than people realise. Our uncleanness. So sin not only makes us guilty before God, but makes us unclean, ashamed, dirty. It's not just a breaking of a law, but a pollution. It doesn't just change our legal status, it changes us... inside 
It corrupts us. It changes what we are. If we fall into a pile of manure, we'll be dirty and smelly. And in the same way, if we fall into sin, we are dirty, smelly, repugnant. And that sense of the Lord smelling is like, oh, oh, disgusting smell. Whereas the other smell of atonement soothes. There's a lot about smell stuff and the soothing and the Lord's nose in the Bible. Don't just like write it off. Think about it. Disease infects clothes, blankets. They're burned to get rid of the infection, aren't they? Yeah. The Lord's like, that's right. We must burn this. Get rid of it comprehensively, thoroughly. We're not managing it. We're destroying it. Evil's like that. Our sin will defile us and those we've sinned against. So it doesn't just defile us, it defiles those we touch. All that's in these laws as well. You are dirty, you are polluted, you are unclean, and then you go and touch other people and they become dirty. And That's life, isn't it? When we're sick and corrupt with our sin, we drag others in. We, do, we, foul, we befoul them. We, make, we take away their innocence. We destroy them. It, we can't keep it all to ourselves. The people we touch, our families, our friends, they get corrupted by our sin. All that's here. It's an infectious thing, the uncleanness of sin. Only Jesus it isn't. With Jesus, he touches the lepers. They are cleansed. For everybody else, we're corrupted. Because the corruption's in us. But not in him. He's so clean that when he touches the unclean, they are cleansed. It's awesome, isn't it? And so if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What he's done in his cross and resurrection really cleanses. Let's move on. I know time's moving. The guilt offering is in Leviticus 5 from verse 14 to 6, 7. This is the fourth of our offerings. The guilt offerings is about repaying damage, harm and loss, putting them right. Sin always incurs a debt against the Lord God, always against fellow human beings, often. In Leviticus 6, 2 to 6, we see the human side of repaying what was lost. But also in verses 2 and 6 of Leviticus 2, we see how we are unfaithful to the Lord when we harm each other. So, we can deal, the Lord wants us to bother about how we've done loss, our sin causes loss to each other, and He wants us to take that seriously and repay that. But always remember, He says, when you've harmed each other, you're actually harming me. Sins against each other are sins against me. And in fact, in Psalm 51, there's that sense against you, Lord, only you have I done wrong. So strong is that sense. That when wrongs we've done to each other, it's, it's the Lord really who's offended. 
and only secondarily us. But here, there's this all this sense of the concept of repaying what's been lost. Guilt offerings are done in that way. And first and foremost, there's this repaying what is what the Lord has lost: His honor, His glory, His peace, His joy, His all this. There must be atonement to the Lord. And second, it does say that loss must be more than repaid to one another. In chapter 5, verse 16, and chapter 6, verse 5, it says 20% more than is lost must be repaid when you've wronged people. Why is that? We see it in the case of Zacchaeus, don't we? Zacchaeus, I will repay more than I've ta- And then the, that's a lovely thing. That's, that's this offering. from the, That's this Leviticus being captured in the example of Zacchaeus. What's it showing? It's showing that he's so fed up of his sin and he doesn't want to benefit from his sin in any way and wants to do everything that he can to put right what he's done wrong. It's, it's the fruits of real repentance, that is. It's really saying, I've absolutely done with this sin. And anything I've gained from it, I want to give all that back, plus some. It's, that, it's the, the fruits of repentance, that is. Beautiful. Like John the Baptist says it, doesn't he? When they, the, the soldiers say, well, what can we do to repent? And he says, well, give back what you've stolen and some. It's that. True repentance, it's not just a sorrow for what we've done. Any idiot can feel sorry for what they've done. Non-Christians feel dreadfully disgusted with themselves when they sin, when they do evil things. Not all the time, but sometimes they'll be, oh, I'm so, I hate myself for what I do. Yeah, sure, sorrow. There's nothing particularly spiritual about feeling sorry for yourself when you do disgusting things. When we sin, there's nothing particularly spiritual about feeling dreadful about it. That's not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow drives us to Christ and make, and the fruits of repentance is seeing what we can do about it and a total transformation of life. There's all sorts of aspects of real spiritual repentance. But just feeling bad about it, that's nothing. That's nothing. And we can easily trick ourselves, can't we? Well, we sin and go, oh, I'm so, I feel so terrible about it. And imagine we've repented. We're not repenting at all, necessarily. We might just be navel-gazing, becoming even more selfish and introspective and full of ourselves than ever. That's what happens so easily. Real repentance is something that does much more than that. We take the opposite direction to our sin. We turn around and the opposite direction, instead of taking from, we give to. Instead of stealing, we earn to give away. All these are things in the Bible, repentance is going in the opposite direction. It's not just like, oh. Repaying the wrong we've done to others is often the first shoots of genuine spiritual life. How can, but we can't repay what? We can't repay the Lord God. We've stolen from his glory and majesty. And if we've wasted the lives that he gave us, how can we ever make that right? How can we repay him for all he's given us? How can we give him back what we've wasted? Our eyes were created to gaze in love at others, in wonder at God's creation, and ultimately to gaze at God himself. And yet if we've used those eyes to 
gaze in greed, hatred, lust. How can we repay that? If our bodies were made to glorify God in all we do, and yet we've used those bodies to harm others, to indulge ourselves, how can we give him back? We might wish our lives had been different, but yet... And this has been through all the time, isn't it? We turn to Jesus and we see the man who always lived his life as God dreamed he would. Who always used his eyes rightly. Who always used his body rightly. His hands, his feet, his ears. He always did that. We cannot renew our own lives. We cannot repay all our debts, even on a human level, certainly not to the living God. But the Lord Jesus promised this day when at the renewal of all things, he said, at the renewal of all things, you say, well, you can really renew everything. You can repay and restore everything. And he, yeah, he calls it at the renewal of everything. How's he going to do that? Well, we leave it with him. All the damage will be repaired. All that's wrong will be put right. Finally then, the fellowship offering. Leviticus 3, here you go. You thought I'd forgotten it. No, chapter 3. I leave it to the end because it is at the end in the other list, but... It's the, and here it's positioned at the heart of the five, in the middle, because this is the climactic one, the fellowship offering. As we saw in that consideration at the beginning, it shows that when everything's dealt with, sin taken seriously, and a transformation of life and cleansing and debts repaid. When all, this, when all that needs to be done is done, let us sit down for fellowship. Let us have fellowship. So the fellowship offering was different for two reasons. First, it was optional. That's the most extraordinary thing about it. It was optional. You didn't have to do it. The other ones, it's like, you must do this. This one, if you want. And the second thing about it is the worshipper could, could eat, eat the meat with the high priest. You got to join in and eat in it. And you could bring people along to eat it with you. So the optional character of it. Well, let's work it just quickly through. You could bring your family, friends, spend a couple of days actually. You could have some the next day. You didn't have to eat it all on the day. It could roll over to the next day. Make a weekend of it almost. Um, What are you doing? Enjoying this rich, beautiful meat in the presence of the Lord God at the tabernacle. And uh, the sacrificial animal represents the redeemed church. Remember there in verse 2, that laying your hand on it, you identify with it. And then, so you're like saying, this is me, like you did with the other one. But in this case, the high priest takes the inner parts of the animal with the fat and they're presented to the Lord as food to be shared. So it's this time, this is me. And this time it isn't like, get it out of the camp and burn it and destroy it. This time it's like, the high priest 
And we know who he represents and all that. Beautiful. He says, let's eat this together. As if to say, I accept you. Let's take this in together. Let's share life. Let's share this life together. It's acceptable. I will eat it. And when the high priest ate it, it's saying something, isn't it? The high priest represents the Lord God, the high priest of all creation. And he's saying, I will eat this. I accept you. I, I will take, I will have your life. It's, there's no problem. Isn't that an awesome thing? Fellowship. We're having fellowship. And then the offering, the family. There's this wonderful moment there. I love it. Happy to have table fellowship and to accept this person symbolically and like take them into himself. But it was optional, wasn't it? And that's what I find the most powerful thing. Because did that ancient church member get the, understand the point of all these offerings and sacrifices? They might be like, oh, I've got to do it. Yeah, I've got to take a bit of grain. Got to do it. It's like, no, no, that's not good enough. You can't do this out of duty. So the Lord says, look, this one, it's optional. You don't have to do it. It's rather, <laughs> um, if, you wa- if you want to, if you want to, you can do it. So the other offerings were all necessary and compulsory, and they represented what had to be done to make fellowship possible between the Lord God and his people. So those are the four. The, they had to be done. But if everything had been put right, what was next? Really, it's say, the Lord's saying, now then, do you want fellowship with me? I'm not going to force you to have fellowship with me. I'm not going to force that. But do you want that? You can, if you want. Isn't that lovely? So it's the person would go, oh, that is the thing I want. That's why we've done everything else. That's why I trust in the great high priest. That's why the angel of the Lord is my hand. That's why I look forward to all that he will do one day when he takes on flesh. And he is the Lamb of God who offers himself. I look forward to that. And the only thing I want is fellowship. I just want to be able to go through the curtain to the fountain of life. That's all I want. That's what church is all about. And in a way, that fellowship offering is a sign pointing towards the marriage feast of the Lamb, isn't it? At the end. On that day, there'll be such intimate table fellowship because the Lord speaks about it being a a banquet, a feast, eating together. Because when you eat with somebody, it means something. Even in our culture, for someone who's like your enemy, do you want to come around for me? No! I don't want to eat with you. But if we want to show friendship, we say, come on, let's eat together. It means something, and it does to the living God. Let's eat together. Fellowship offering was a small taste of that. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was in fact killed as the atoning sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. And all that is to be accomplished in these offerings was in Jesus 
and all the broken relationships. We have to come to him. All that the law, the tabernacle, the temple, the prophets ever foretold comes to this completion and fulfillment in the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Matthew 27, 50 to 51. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks The work of the Lamb of God was then complete. The sins of the world taken away, atonement made, soothing. Not just for a moment, not just in anticipation, but finally, absolutely, once for all, soothing to the wrath of God. And we can walk with confidence into the most holy presence of the Father. I'm just going to end with these words. Spurgeon, October the 8th, 1863, evening sermon began like this. Again the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, he whom Jehovah loves beyond all else, came to earth, became a man, and as a man was obedient unto death on the cross, It is he who is called in our text, the Lamb of God, the one sacrifice for human sin. There's no putting away of sin without sacrifice. There's only one sacrifice that can put away sin, and that is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is divine, yet human, Son of God, yet Son of Mary. He yielded up his life, the just for the unjust, the sinless for the sinful, that he might bring us to God and reconcile us to the great Father. That is the story. And whosoever believeth in him shall live. Any man. The world over who will trust himself to Christ, God's great sacrifice, shall be saved. For this is our continual witness. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen.